Thank you. Um, we're going to start in uh, Romans chapter 6. And the um, one of the things I saw today was uh, the latest uh, PragerU video that was put out. Uh, this one was narrated by Dennis Prager himself. Uh, they've become pretty famous videos, uh, about five minutes long. The content of them is usually quite good. And uh, he talked about how the, many in the world have thought that goodness uh, comes from their own conscience. And that was the subject of it, that uh, if my conscience says that it's right to do, then it's right. And so people, we live by our conscience. And he brought up all the reasons why that is absolutely impossible uh, for a person's conscience to dictate that which is good. And he also mentioned how it's also a deviation from the the world uh, that was under Judeo-Christian morality that uh, was, you know, usually most of the world for many, many hundreds of years. And that not, it's not that the idea that people wanted to reject the laws of God and the commandments of God, it's that has always been around what the what is new, at least here in America, is that it has gained such great uh, unification of certain amount of people who have believed it, and in fact, it has overrun uh, media, government, uh, corporations, even, and so on. And that, and again, this is this. It's the idea that if I feel like doing it, it's got to be right. And you know, you point out at monsters in history like Stalin and Hitler who lived for, you know, decades doing the wrong, just absolutely pure evil and and probably sleeping like a baby at night. You know, their conscience said that this was the right thing to do. And so conscience is not a dictation of what is right or wrong. And that's what Paul's going to bring out in our passage today, in that it is God's rules and God's laws that do that. Now, uh, God's laws and rules are not arbitrary. They're not just things that he thought up. Uh, the rules that God has, the commandments that he has, are made for himself. Now, he didn't make them for himself. He is above all things. But they flow from him, from his nature. And we are created in his image. And therefore, to live in the image that we are, we have to put ourselves under those rules. And as believers, we're made for this. And so that's what we'll see today in Paul's passage. So let's pray that first and foremost, our hearts are open to be reminded of things that we already know. Paul is going to say that as well, and that we have to be humble enough to know that we have to be reminded. We have to be reminded over and over of the things that we already know. Uh, And that we also pray for the humility and... um, openness of heart to be able to understand and comprehend this passage today. So let's bow our heads and pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for this passage that we're going to look at today, for it is eternally truthful. Uh, from you, inspired by your Holy Spirit, to the Apostle Paul, or through the Apostle Paul, and then on to us. That we can see this paragraph every day of our lives. That we can be reminded of it, and need to be reminded of the content of it. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you have given it to us by your grace, and that through the Spirit within us that we can comprehend your word so that we can live that word and be really, truly set free from things that profess to be true and good, but are not. Thanks to you, Father, and your truth, we don't have to be deceived by the world and by the flesh or by the devil anymore. We thank you so much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the, the topic here of this passage, which is 1 Thessalonians 4. So we're studying the book of 1 Thessalonians. Then we'll do 2 Thessalonians because they are absolutely connected. And the, we've looked at the first three chapters. Chapter 3 we went through kind of uh, quickly in a summary fashion uh, for the reason of its content. And then in chapter 4 we kind of slow down a bit again because of its content. Uh, chapter 4 starts another section in this letter. And the content of it, or we should say the main theme of it, is sanctification. And so we have to make sure first and foremost that we understand what sanctification is. Uh, it is synonymous with the word holiness and not everybody knows what holiness means. Everybody's heard the word, but not a lot of people know exactly what it means. So let's define it. Sanctification is thinking and conducting ourselves according to God's will in everything. Again, Sanctification is thinking and conducting ourselves according to God's will. I put both those words, thinking and con conducting, in terms of how we think and the things that we do. Uh, the Christian life is not just in doing, it's not just in thinking. It's in both. Uh, our first uh, letter that we looked at in our series here convinced us of that, which is the book of James, that if we have the truth in our head and do nothing, do nothing with it, we pretty much live dead lives. And so faith without works is useless, as he says. And uh, the same is here with sanctification. Sanctification is not just how we think, it's also how we conduct ourselves. But we can't conduct ourselves properly if we don't think properly. And so it's both mind, body, spirit, mind, body, soul, and heart. So uh, now, uh, this is in all things. The sanctification of God or holiness of God touches every aspect of our lives. There isn't like a holy day. There's every day is holy. There isn't a holy event. Every event is holy because everything is under God's will. We have to do everything under his will. Paul is going to say here that it is necessary that we do so because we're called to it. And that is the motivation he gives. Paul tells us that we're called to the will of God in everything in our lives. And as born-again believers, it's what we're made for. So, sanctification, we should know, comes from the word which means saint, holy, and holiness. And uh, all those words, the word holy is used uh, over 200 times in the New Testament. You'll see it. And it's directly related to this word, which is a synonym of holy, 
Well, I'll show you the words here coming up. But sanctification is the same word, the same root word in the original Greek where we get saint, holy, and holiness. Paul uses it, and the way he uses it in our passage is the way he uses it here in Romans 6.19. He says in verse 19, I'm, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. The context of Romans 6 is the fact that we've been crucified with Christ and we've also been resurrected with Christ. All believers have. The opening of chapter 6 starts with the fact that since we're under grace, should we continue in sin? It's really the question. It starts with the question. Since we're under grace, should we continue in sin? Paul says, heck no, or may it never be. Uh, then Paul launches into a, an amazing uh, writing about how we are to behave ourselves in this world because we've been resurrected with Christ. And it's the same motivation that he gives in 1 Thessalonians 4 and Romans 8 and in many other passages is that we've been called to this. Um, he doesn't try and scare us into it. Although, you know, somewhat, you know, he tells us that we should have the fear of Christ and that there is a judgment seat of Christ and all of us should have some caution concerning the fact that we are going to be judged for everything we do, whether good or bad, by Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. Sorry, 10. Yes, 5.10. Uh, and, but the, the motivation, the true motivation is not fear, but love. And it, it's a love for who God has made us to be. And... Um, you know that for that we've got to truly understand who God has made us to be, and it is just fantastic. So, and that gets to this word sanctification because sanctification in Scripture has three uh, three phases. I guess we should say phrases, and and we have to truly understand in the passage which one of these three is being referenced. Uh, and it's a busy looking slide, but you have three things there. You have positional experiential, and eternal. And they're pretty easy to understand. Positional sanctification means that I'm holy at the moment of salvation. If I'm saved, that means that I have eternal life with God, God indwells my body, that I have all of my sins forgiven, and that my destiny is with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity in heaven in the New Jerusalem. It means that I'm perfectly righteous in God's eyes and my sins have been completely cast away. And therefore, it means that I'm holy. Now, that happens at the moment of salvation. That is no guarantee that we'll behave in a holy manner. Uh, for some, In some uh, divisions of Christianity, certain sects of Christianity, uh, they make a connection between those two and say the positional is the experiential and meaning that if you don't live holy, you're not saved. That's kind of salvation by works or lordship salvation. I disagree with that completely. Um, <clears throat> believers in the scripture can be carnal. Uh, Paul is going to exhort, that's the word he uses in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, for the believers there who already know that they're supposed to live holy. He's going to exhort them and encourage them to continue 
and not fall into things like sexual immorality. Why is he going to warn them of that? It's because all of us can do that as believers. And so positional is made holy at the moment of salvation. Experiential, now, and that's what we're, we're after here today, is our choices. These are our choices to think and behave in the way that we are. Uh, one, one way I like to put it is that our actions and our thinking are in harmony with who we really are in Christ. Our position we can't lose. We're holy forever and saved forever. But our experiences we can totally throw away. I love that word in, in uh, Ephesians 5.18, the, the uh, dissipation word. Don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That's pro- the word means prodigal. It refer, it's just a parallel to the prodigal son who took what his father had given him and went to a far land and did what? He wasted it. And we can do the same. You know, We can take these things that God has given us and made us to be and throw them away as we pursue the things that we've been set free from. And so, the, and so we're, here we are again, right? We're talking about this same thing again. Uh, there's many lessons lately that have been about this very thing. Uh, that's not me doing that, by the way. That's not me doing that at all. Um, it's, it's me following the, the passages that we're doing. I'm going verse by verse through Thessalonians, and yet it comes up again. Uh, so, experiential is our choices to think and behave holy. Then there's eternal sanctification, which in the, by the context of the passage, we can figure out you know, which one is being spoken of. There's a sanctification in heaven, which, of course, all believers are going to have. So, if you're saved, you're going to be holy in heaven forever. And holy in heaven forever does refer to this eternal one, in which both the position and the experience, both of these, are going to happen here. And so they're together. There's not going to be any sin. There's nobody sinning in heaven. You know? So there's, there's holiness in conduct and in position. And before we get to heaven, we want, this is what experiential is about, which so much of the writing in the New Testament is about, that the positional becomes a reality before we get to heaven. That by faith, by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. And, you know, what is the most excellent life, the most excellent way, is that middle one. I mean, it corresponds to the other two, but in time, now choices matter. And we'll see that in Paul's passage and many other passages. And so as we um, look to the... My arrow. Uh, the one where in our passage is a reference to experiential. How we determine which one is being referenced is the context of the passage. Because it's the same word. There's not a different word used for all three. It's the same word, uh, but in the context, you know, what is being written about. So let's go to Ephesians 1 3 before we go to our main passage. Ephesians 1 3. Because our experiential sanctification is God's will. It is God's will and it pleases God that that middle one is actually the one that uh, we live. That's what pleases the Lord. And so in uh, this one right here. See, now Alan, I can see that when you turn it. 
So this one right here in our passage, this is the one that pleases the Lord in time about us. This is what he wills for us. Now, if you don't have the position, you can't do this. But if you do have the position, you can do this. You're, you're made for it. And that's what Paul's going to tell us. Uh, <clears throat> and it's not just in mind only, it's in body, because uh, what Paul is going to reference are two things that are physical. Well, you know, they're both mental and physical, I should say. So look at Ephesians 1.3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be, or should be, is a, another good translation there, holy and blameless before him. And here's our word holy. It's the word hagios. And our word sanctification is hagiasmos. So we have hagias and hagiasmos. And they, they're both very similar words. You can hear it. Hagias, hagiasmos. They come from the same word. Uh, the passage states that God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. And that, you know, Paul could reference the first, all three of them here. I mean, we're called. And if you're called an elected person, you are going to have the first one and the third one for sure. The second one is up to you in time, depending upon your faith and your commitment to the plan of God for your life. And But, you know, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians has all, uh, has all three written in them, uh, but mainly it focuses on the first two. So, uh, bl and then blameless, holy and blameless, that we should be this. Blameless literally means to be unstained. And Paul uses a syn synonymous word in our passage, which is unclean. So, they're two different Greek words, but uh, blameless is unstained. And uh, Paul's going to reference unclean. So, we, you know, the, the opposite of um, holiness is being dirty, and that is metaphorical to having a life that is ruled by sin. So, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4. So, this is the second main division of the letter. And in this section, Paul is going to exhort them, and therefore us, to strive even more for abundant holiness in their lives. He's going to tell them to strive for it and not just settle for where they are presently. And as we've noted in the first three chapters, the Thessalonians, in just the very beginning of their salvation, have done marvelously. They have, they have faith, hope, and love in, quite, in, in such abundance that the whole area has heard about their change. Uh, the, their change from paganism to Christianity, and enough of them have done this, that this church in Thessalonica that has just begun, its fame has actually spread throughout the whole area. People are talking about it. And that means that they're doing really well, and Paul is going to congratulate them. He's really, uh, yeah, I guess you could say he's going to congratulate them. He's going to be thankful to God for that. He writes that, but he's also going to tell them don't stop there. Keep going. And in fact, they've got a long way to go. They've just begun in the Christian life. And anybody who's been in the Christian way of life for 
a long period of time knows even still that there is a long, long way to go. But anyway, uh, we love the life, and that's fine. So 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction is how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Now, walk always means in the New Testament uh, life or lifestyle. So Paul starts with the fact that you've received instruction from us about how you ought to walk and please God, and you actually do that, that you excel still more. The word excel is abound still more. For you know what commandments we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So note there in verse 3, your sanctification. That is... You abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles. And Gentiles in this context would always mean the unbelieving nations. So like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter, and what that matter is we'll see, it's really conflict, because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things, meaning he's the judger. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So again here he says in verse 1, he says you received instruction from us. In verse 6 at the end, he says you, you have, we have, sorry, sorry, just as we have also told you before and solemnly warned you. So he mentions here twice that they've been instructed in this, but yet Paul is writing about it again. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, and that word means uncleanliness. So that is linked to the word we saw in Ephesians 1, which is blameless. Right? So impurity, the opposite of which would be clean. Right? It's actually, it's the very word for clean with a negative in front of it. So, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So there's your word sanctification again. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now here at the end of uh, verse 8, there's a natural division. And so this is where the thought, this particular thought in the letter ends in verses 1 through 8. Uh, then there's another thought very similar to this one in verses 9 through 12. That's what we'll look at next. And then another thought, which is also related to this, but about the returning Lord in verses 13 through 18. So there's three sections in chapter 4. So first, our main theme is where do we find sanctification? Because that's the theme here. It's mentioned twice, and it's clearly the theme. Now, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. So we find it. You know, kind of look for it. I already pointed it out, but we do like a little where's Waldo, where's sanctification, and we find it in verse 3 and in verse 7. And they become, therefore, sanctification not only is mentioned twice in this section that is really, you know, it's like three or four sentences put together, so it's a legitimate paragraph. And the thing that's it's mentioned twice is sanctification, and it's kind of at the beginning in verse 3, and it's also near the end in verse 7. And so sanctification becomes this sort of bookend, or bookends, 
to this thought that we have in verse 3, sanctification, and verse 7, sanctification. And that tells us in a structure like this that we're going to find the details of sanctification in the middle. So he introduces this holy living, which is sanctification is about. He connects it to the will of God. And then in verse 7, he connects it to the election of God, which is God's will for your life. So in the middle, kind of like marrow in a bone, is this uh, detail of what he is talking about. First, let's see, though, what he has not called us to. And, you know, uh, for many of us, this is kind of like a no duh. I think everybody in the West, pretty much, not everybody, that's not true. But for most people, this is a, a pretty um, already fully understood statement. But God has not called us for the purpose of uncleanliness or impurity. Um, you know, we've heard the phrase cleanliness is next to godliness, and that's literally talking about literal cleanliness, cleanliness, uh, which is you know a good thing, but it's not what the scripture is stating in terms of cleanliness. Cleanliness in the scripture or purity is is sinless purity. Not that we can be sinless, but it is a lifestyle without sin doing the will of God. So that's what cleanliness is for us. It's holiness, it's righteousness, it's sanctification. And God has not called us to that. So to us, a no-brainer. But remember, this is a brand new church, a brand new group of believers who have just been pulled out of a very unclean society. Uh, for most of these believers that Paul is writing to are Gentiles. And they've been brought up in a very impure society of paganism. And it's not so obvious to them that this is a wrong way. You know, if they've lived with it their whole lives, we see in Corinth, right, that they went back to immorality pretty quickly after Paul had left because that's what they were used to in their old lives. And once they heard about grace, they thought, well, you know, maybe the old life is good enough or is okay. And, of course, it's not, and Paul has to point that out to them. And he's pointing it out here to the Thessalonians as well that, um, you know, to them that you're not called to impurity is not so obvious. But this is still an issue with the church today, even though to us it's pretty obvious there's no, almost no one grows up in Western society thinking that God, even, you know, most, a lot of people are agnostic. They, they don't really believe in the Jesus Christ as God, but they're not atheists. Atheists are pretty rare. And, but agnostics are like, yeah, I believe in a God, but, you know, I don't really know who he is. Um, but those people also believe in a certain level of morality, and generally, if you ask people, unbelievers, if you believe in a God who's a creator, do you think he's called you to do sinful things? They would say, of course not. And that's Western society. Why is that in Western society? Because Western society is fully influenced by Christianity. Uh, as one writer puts it uh, that I read not too long ago, is that the whole Western society swims in Christian waters, and most people don't know it. And, and so, uh, not that we're a Christian nation, we're not, we're a nation uh, of, uh, we're secular, basically, but um, 
Christianity has fully influenced this nation and Europe. And so the whole West has been influenced by the fact that, you know, God has not called people to immorality. No, duh. But, you know, even though, so we become Christians and we doubly know this. I mean, if we didn't know it before, we know it now that we're not called to immorality. And uh, as we read and study our Bibles and go to church, we find out even more that, you know, this is not acceptable of Christian behavior. So is that good enough? You know, to all the Christians everywhere, at least church-going ones, they never touch immorality. Or if they do fall into it, it's very rare. But that's not the case, is it? In fact, it becomes a very serious issue. And... So the fact that we know we're not supposed to be immoral doesn't stop us from being immoral. Why? Well, because we want to be. I mean, to be honest, right? People choose immorality because they want to. They choose to put things in their body or to look at things or listen to things or, or whatever that are sinful and immoral because they think they're going to get some kind of pleasure from them. And generally they do, although it's momentary. It's very momentary. And immorality, in fact, uh, tortures us over time, uh, even though it gives us pleasure for a short while. So it is because we desire immoral behavior and we justify it, and thus we defile our conscience. And Paul is going to emphasize two parts of immorality, sex and greed. Those are the two parts he's going to highlight here, sex and greed. And, um, you know, that is two of the areas of immorality that are very, very dangerous uh, because they are um, they appeal to a great portion of the population, Christians included, and, and people fall into them. It, it's a part of, it's almost like... Uh, you know, hands reaching up from the underworld to try and grab you and pull you down as they're everywhere. Greed and sexual deviation. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And the Paul and the men with him who served the Thessalonians, they served them when they were there. They request here and exhort. That's what it is. Request and exhort. These two words also mean beseech and comfort. Uh, they are indicatives, meaning, uh, sorry, uh, oh, I can't remember what they are. That doesn't matter. And then he says, as you received instruction on how you ought to walk, the word ought means necessary. And notice the word ought. It's a short word. We can easily glance over it. In fact, in Greek, it's, it's a tiny word. It's a little three-letter word, dei. But dei means it is necessary. That's what it always means. It can be translated ought. Ought is fine. But we have to understand that he said, look, our instruction to you was how it is necessary for you to live and please God. Right? In other words... What's my motivation here, Paul? It's necessary. But wait, I, I know you say necessary, but why? Why is it necessary? And Paul will tell them it's because you were called for it. 
You were called to it. It's God's will. You were called to it. That's why it's necessary. There's no other, you know, you know, more complex motivations can be hyper-analyzed and be thought to be some kind of complex thing. But really, the best motivations are the simplest, aren't they? Like, people are motivated by love, love, love for something or someone. It's simple. And here, it's, it's even the simplest. You know, you, were, you love the one who called you to be this. And that's what you're called to be. That's what you're made to be. And that's Paul's, not just here, in several places, it's Paul's motivation to his readers. You're called for this. So it is necessary. That's what he says. Ought means it is necessary. Now, as we see what Paul had said to them here, they'd already been taught what Paul is going to tell them about sanctification. It's already been taught to them. They have also been living sanctified lives, as we see in the first three chapters. So Paul has already made it clear to us that they've, they've already been doing this. And yet, he's still going to tell them to do it and also to do it better. Excel more. Right? That, that word more is there in the original. It means it's malon. It means more. Do it more. The word excel is a word for uh, being abundant. Uh, it's a word that Jesus actually uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he asks us if, you know, when he says that uh, if we greet only those or love only those who love us, he says, how are we, in Matthew's Gospel, how are we extraordinary? And he uses the same word that Paul is using here that is translated excel, uh, parisos, or, or I think it's parisos. And, and this word means to abound. It means to go above and beyond. And that's what Jesus said to us. If you live like all the other unbelievers, how are you abounding in life? Because I came to give you life abundantly. So we find, as we connect all these passages and thoughts that God gives us in his word, that we were designed not for immorality, but for an ethical life that comes from heaven itself. It comes from God himself because it is God. And you know, as God is love, God is righteous, God is just, God is truth. These things are what make up our lives. There are, they are of the essence of of God. And that's why, you know, if we're called by God and made in his image, then, um, you know, this is the only life, hence Paul says, it is necessary. I guess what I'm trying to get at, it, it, it's the same way that I've been trying to explain this for a lot of years in, in different ways, and that is that there is no other life that you know, man was not made to run on sin. Man was not made to run on perversion. Is that, that's really what immorality is. It's a perversion of the things that God has given man. You know, immoral sex is a perversion of sex. God didn't say have no sex. He said have the sex the way that I have guided you in marriage. Committed. And... You know, every other every other sexual immorality is a deviation of that. Greed. It's not like God said, I'm not going to give you any money and that all you believers are going to be the poorest of the poor of the poor. All That's not true. Um, but he said, don't want more than what you have. What I've given you. Don't want more. 
And that's exactly what we see in this passage. That people want more. Why would you want more? Because you're not satisfied with what you have. So here it is again, right? The will of God, the election of God to sanctification. And all believers need to hear it again and again and again and again. And why is that? Well, Paul's doing the same thing. You already know it. You already live in it. But I'm going to tell you again because just because you know it doesn't mean that you're safe from falling away from that life that is that you're currently living so abundantly. So if you get sick of hearing about living holy, then I can tell you honestly that the word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword is piercing your soul and dividing asunder your judgment and your motivation. Because if a believer gets sick of hearing about living holy, it's probably very true that they don't want to live holy. And what I can tell you the best thing to do is that you really don't want to live holy because the Word of God by its repetition is revealing that to you then you should really take a self-evaluation in prayer with God alone and find out how true that is before it's too late. Not that you're going to lose your salvation, of course not, but that you will you know, have a difficult time at the judgment seat of Christ. All right, verse 2, Paul writes, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. All right, so he says here again, you already know them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. And that refers to your body, but not just the physical body. And so that's, a, that's where you get into Gnosticism, where you think, well, you know, the mind and the body are not the same here in terms of vessel. They certainly are. He, he could have used the word body. You know, obviously, the word soma is, is used a lot in the Scripture. He could have easily used it. But he doesn't use the word body. He uses the word vessel. And this word vessel, it's a word that could mean uh, an instrument like a guitar or something. It, it's just, it's a thing. You can actually translate this word thing. But because of the context, we know it means that it is your body, but not just your body, your mind. Because the Lord told us, right, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her. So it's the mind and the body that are held in sanctification and in honor. And notice that it is up to you to possess it. So God has given you control of this. It's uh, control of your own soul, which really is your free will, your decisions. So each of you know how to possess his own vessel. You possess it. And that's exactly what the phrase means. It's translated great. How to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. In honor is to love the things that are excellent. Sanctification is our word again. Right? It's the third time it's used. It's the second of the three times it's used in this passage. That it's God's will for your sanctification and that you possess your own body, mind, soul, and spirit in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passion. Lustful passion is very, it's almost the same as sexual immorality. Basically, it is. Uh, like the Gentiles are unbelievers who do not know God. 
So the command, so Paul again here, the commandments have to be repeated to us again and again. He says in verse 2, just like he says in verse 1, that you know what the commandments are, so I'm going to repeat them. Paul, why do I need to hear them again if you've already told me them and you can see that I'm living them? And because, as Paul knows, and which is, is now forever in the eternal word of God, just because we know something doesn't mean that we're in a safe place or... I shouldn't, you know, that's a, that's a bad phrase nowadays, but uh, that we're, we're protected from falling away because we know, because we've been practicing it. We can still fall. And so it has, we have to be reminded and repeated just as often as the Word of God repeats it. Then, the two big traps here that are mentioned are sex and greed. And these, you know, so we're, we're talking about sanctification, but here are the things in a fallen world that are pulling people away. Now, obviously, there's more than these two, but Paul purposely picks these. Why does he pick them? Well, it's because he knows, like the Th- uh, Thessalonians are from a pagan background. What do pagans love the most? Sex and money. We see it. It's, it. It continues to play itself out, not just in the first century, in in the Roman world, but you know, in our world, and it constant. It, it has been constantly. So, sexual immorality in verse three, lustful passion in verse four, the same thing. That's illicit sexual activity. Uh, I'll spare us from the various forms that that can hold, but it's the draw of sexual immorality, especially to men, sometimes women as well, and it's sexual perversion. We see it now where in our world where this transgender thing is truly taken off all over the place. It's it's bizarre. Oh, and what is it about? It's it's about the human race saying to God, I can do whatever I want. You know, you made me a man, so I, you know I'm going to change that. I have the final say over what I am. Now, God says, possess your vessel, true, but not in any way you want, but in sanctification and in honor. And it depends, very important, who defines what sanctification and honor are. And God defines them clearly. Now, unbelievers who don't know God, as we see here, are stuck in immoral behavior. And why is that? And this is this subject is of great interest to me um, because no matter who you are, everybody has felt and experienced the lack of fulfillment in life. And that is because we're all born into this world separate from God. So mankind is born in Adam. Born in Adam, we're born separate from God, we're born in sin. And being born in sin, we're born with fallen DNA. There's something wrong with us right from the start. It's very true uh, that when we see and we, uh, Chris takes care of kids as well as Maggie, and you know these kids are, you know, you just see them in operation. No one's taught them how to be terrible to each other. They just do it. At times, they're really great to each other, but. Just to see the dynamic of children being little children in, in their own little societies, I mean, it's no, no mistake at all that we're fallen beings. So we have fallen DNA. They were born into fallen families and fallen family structures. 
And those vary. Some people are born, some family, all families have fallen structures. Some are a little less fallen than others. And, you know, you're very fortunate if you're born into a good family, especially a good Christian family. But then uh, we're also, we're brought up in that. There's no guarantee, even if you're brought up in a, in a, you know, a solid Christian home that teaches the right things and instructs and disciplines in the right way with love and teaching and wisdom that the children are going to turn out right. It's not the case, not always the case, I should say. So, and also we're born into fallen societies and we all mature in that. Fallen bodies, fallen families, fallen societies, we mature with holes in our soul. We mature with gaps. There are things that are unfulfilled, and we know it. That's the, the uh, problem that when you know, teenagers, when they're starting to become adults, they're starting to actually see that. As, as, younger, as younger, they're blissfully ignorant of the fact that there's something wrong with them. But when they become teenagers, they start to see it, and that's when all the problems start. But um, what happens, and it generally does start in those early teenage years, and it may progress the rest of a person's life, is that they seek something to fill that hole. There's something wrong with every one of us, and we seek things to fill it. It could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be sex. Uh, you know, Paul uses sex here. It's one of the, especially for men, it's something that you seek for. For what reason? It's to fill something. It's a, there's a, there's a, uh, a lack of something, an unfulfilled life, and we seek to fulfill it. It could be us anesthetizing ourselves with drugs and alcohol, or with sex, or with anything else. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to fill the gaps, and we'll never do it. <clears throat> we will never be whole. There will never be a, whole, a, a, a wholeness to us, and, and, and I mean the human race in general. And there are certain times when we understand that. And that, those are times of great stress and depression. And so what, what the human race, and I wonder if it's a gift from God that he's given us is the, the ability, because we'd go completely nutty if it weren't for the fact that we could distract ourselves with various things. And people can, especially now. We've got your little cell phones and computers and the Internet. and It's so easy to distract ourselves with things. We can, the days can fly by as we're moving from one thing to another to another to another to another and we're never really living, we're just moving. We're just moving through space. And this is not what God wants for us. Now, as an unbeliever, what does he say? The Gentiles who don't know God, right? What they're they're stuck in this lustful passion. Why is that? Because they have no way of filling the hole in their heart. No way. So that's why we're to love the uh, the Gentile, the outs- when I say Gentile, we're to love the unbeliever, we're to love the outsider. You know, whether they're doing the craziest stuff, we say, God, it's so immoral. And yes, especially if they're hurting people, if they're hurting our society, which so many of them are, 
you know, the law, should, we should have law, the enforcement of the law to deal with that. That's another thing that Satan has robbed our country from is the enforcement of the law. And we can see it. It's not like there haven't been crazies around forever. It's just that they're being let out into Rome society. There's all kinds of issues. But still, that homeless person who's talking to himself, who's, you know, batty crazy, can be saved in a moment. I know, because I know people who have. I know homeless people who are the most powerful Christians who were homeless for years, hooked on the strongest drugs, and basically so close to death. And now they're witnesses for Christ. Strong, strong believers. <clears throat> so what the, the issue, right, is that as... Hear, hear what happens to us in Colossians 2.10. In him you have been made complete. That word complete, the Greek word teleos, it means to be made full. You, you could use it to be made full, complete, or perfect. Sometimes it's, it can be translated perfect. Right? Because of Christ in him. And therefore, we see here in this passage, what is the immoral life? And it is not the complete life because it is the perversion of the things that have been given to man as blessings, like sex. Like, you know, when people uh, drink excessive alcohol or take drugs, they're releasing dopamine in their brain. That's why you feel good. There are also, there's other uh, neurotransmitters. We, we looked at this when we did Ephesians 5.18 Oh, it's probably a couple months ago. There are these neurotransmitters that are released. I can't remember if they're released or they're shut off, but I think released in which it slows down brain function. That's why we get kind of lethargic. And at the same time, a release of dopamine. So your brain slows down and you get a feel good. And it's fake. You know, it's not, uh, we're not teetotalers here, you know, if it, Alcohol, if it's excessive, that's between you and God. Uh, but, you know, powerful drugs do it immediately. And everybody's taking them for the same reason. Again, whether it's excessive or it's abuse, in that they're slowing down their brains and releasing dopamine. So, does God say, I want you to have no dopamine? Is that his thing? Is God going around making sure nobody's having any fun? Is that his thing? Well, what happens to people when they spend lives in immorality? It's torturous. They, they, they torture themselves slowly. God is extremely patient here. He has made it so that our bodies, especially as young, can handle this for a while. But then we end up torturing ourselves with it. And then God is there waiting. To solve the problem. It's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son says this hurts. It's painful. I'm starving. The slop of the pigs. I would eat that if I could. That's how hungry I am. I'm going home. And the father runs out to greet us. No condemnation. No guilt. Our son was dead. And now he's alive. So... Uh, for the sake of time here, I didn't think I actually had enough material, funny enough, but it looks like I have a little more. Um, 
<clears throat> Sanctification now is, let's just get to the, the other part. All right, then in verse 6, look at verse 6. And that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter. Now the word matter here refers to the fact that some kind of conflict or situation has occurred. It's a very general word. But the context is transgression and defrauding. Right? So, first off, transgression. This word means to reach too far. And it may mean in this context just sin in general. But it is connected to the word defraud by that and, that little conjunction. Both transgress and defraud are in the exact same form in the Greek and so you can see it. it. With my limited knowledge of Greek that I now have, I can see, you know, you look at that language and you see those two words are stuck together. Transgress means to reach too far. Defraud, which is actually used for Satan in one passage in 2 Corinthians 2.11, where Paul says that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorance of his schemes. The that phrase there, no advantage be taken, all of those words are a translation of this one word that means to be defrauded. And in every other case in the New Testament, it's in the context of wealth. And so connect that to transgression. Transgression, this word means to reach too far, to want too much. It's often what sin is. You know, there's a line and I cross it. And that's what transgression is. I transgress it. And so here, to my brother, I'm going too far to do what? To get money. Somehow. I'm looking to defraud my brother. Which brother in context would it mean? You know, the context of the passage is not biological brothers, but the body of Christ, the believers. And so even to a fellow Christian, I'm trying to get money somehow, and whether, you know, so basically it refers to greed. You know, I'm, I'm so greedy for more money that I'm willing to go far across the line with my fellow believer to get it. In other words, to defraud him. And then he says, the Lord is the avenger of this. And so we have both of these things here. The Lord said to us, uh, Actually, he said to a man who interrupted him while he was preaching, the Lord was teaching a sermon. Some guy said, Lord, divide the inheritance between me and my brother. And the Lord said to him, he said, man, how am I a judge over you? And then he said to this man and to the crowd, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Beware of it. Now, why would he say that? As, you know, There's many other sins that people can fall into, but... Sexual immorality and more money are marketed in this world as the things that will fulfill the unfulfilled soul. And so what happens with believers, and that's who we need to focus on, is that we will, by temptation, say no to sanctification, no to the holy life, and choose an immoral, greedy life, thinking... That the immoral, greedy life is the one that's truly going to give us the happiness that we want. In other words, why, are we even, why do we even want more money if we're not satisfied? If, should I say that right? <laughs> if we're not not satisfied. 
why would we want more money if we're satisfied? Why would we want sexual immorality if our bodies are completely content? Meaning, truly, our minds are completely content. And this is what God, God wants life for us. Paul wants life for his converts, which is, you know, he's doing God's will. And God wants for us this one and only life. We were made for it. It is God's will. We were elected to it. And, you know, have these two things, you know, they're kind of like chief. They're kind of like king and queen of all the, all the other types of immorality. Have they ever fulfilled anybody? All right? They, they fill people for a moment. I say a moment, it could be a few hours, sure. Maybe a day. And then they're not lasting. And as, we, and as a person returns to them to try and get that day or a few hours of fulfillment, uh, let's say that the first, the first use gives you a few hours of fulfillment. The second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth use gives you less fulfillment, less time. Because you grow accustomed to it. And then as you continue, you get less and less and less time. And then, if you continue in this pattern, this is why immorality, and it doesn't matter what kind, this is why immorality is poison to any human being, is that you need the thing just to live. It's no longer about pleasure. It's about just existing. And you need it. And then you become addicted. And it doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. It could be anything that you become addicted to it. And... That's the world. Tons and tons of addicts out there addicted to all kinds of stuff, all kinds of sin. And yet God has made us full in Christ, Colossians 2.10, and then gives us this life that is set apart or holy unto Him, that in which He promises He's truly going to give us joy and fulfillment and peace and all of that. And that is His way. So like we tie it to Sunday, when Christ walked out of that tomb, He opened up the door to the new and living way. That's that way. That's a way of sanctification. That is a highway of sanctification. And that's what we're all being called to. By faith we have to walk it. And that's what this passage, at least this first paragraph in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is about. Now we can pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and for this passage. We thank you for the, uh, the exhortation that is a reminder to many of us, but a reminder that is absolutely necessary, as we just read here, that even though we know it, Father, and even though some of us may actually be living it successfully, there is never a time when we will not need to hear it. Uh, your word is rich with the call to that which is life indeed. We pray, Father, that all those who are deceived, and for some of us, or all of us are deceived at some level, that our hearts would be made clear to see why this is so true, that your life is the only life. We are thankful, Father, in Christ's name, amen.